Hi up and welcome to the Temple of Blair. This is a conversation with Michelle Teo. Uh, so Michelle was there between what 1987 to 1997 in a variety of different financial roles. Uh, so I kind of consider this a sequel to the Stefan Custer conversation from a few months ago. Uh, a lot of rounding out of understandings of how the back office functionality worked and further elaborations on how the fiscal arm of the business flexed itself. Anyway, thanks to Michelle for his time, and I hope you guys enjoy this one. One, two, fuck it up. Roadrunner, you've, you've had like a million roles in that company, mostly kind of financial oriented, haven't you? Yeah, correct. If people ask me about the past, I say I basically had most positions except in marketing and promotion because I was not the real metalhead. So if, if I would have been in that area, it would probably not turn out very well. <laughs> yeah, fair, fair enough. And there's, I, I kind of, it's interesting because when people talk about Roadrunner as an entity and my role in trying to tell that story is people are kind of taken back by my interest in the financial side and like the, the, the business side, because it doesn't really lend itself to rock and roll stories of tour buses and backstage stuff. But I think it's like, it's critically important because, and I've said it a million times on this, on this podcast, it's, it's Roadrunner as an entity did things completely unlike any other company. And that's important in how it demonstrated, in how it deployed its backend business functionality. And I think a lot of the, the muscle which gave it its authenticity as a label, as a metal label and its reach is to do with that arm of the business. And it's just oft unrealized. So I am always fascinated by even like simple workflow things. Um, I mean, I'll probably ask you about the the uh, royalties administration simply because like we all have a perception of what that thing is. Uh, typically when you speak to artists, it's like, oh, the royalty was X and it was shit or whatever it is. But, and I don't know the, the I don't know the functionality. I don't know how the day-to-day -day workflow operates. But I think it's just critically important, especially when you're an indie metal label and the cash flow is presumably delicate. Yep. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's 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 kick off like with the um the chronology of things. So how did what was your background before Roadrunner? And how did you end up with the role? Yeah, I was in a university and in my last year, it was pre-internet times, right? It was 80, 87. Uh, I remember there was some ads literally in the hall of that university. And one of the ads was Rotary Records looking for a royalty and copyright uh, uh, manager, administrator, whatever. And at that time, I was also thinking about joining Heineken <laughs> and KLM. <laughs> My grandfather worked at Heineken, so that was, among other things, a, a natural uh, uh, thought. <laughs> uh, KLM and, and probably one or two other companies, but I used to be a DJ, again, not in heavy metal, but in big, large discotheques in Amsterdam also. And uh, into music, worked in my uh, uh, work part-time also in a record store, and obviously uh, working for a record label is like a dream come true. So I applied for the job and I had an interview with both Case uh, Says, as we say, and John van der Linden, his uh, uh, partner at that time. And in the end, they didn't hire me. And the reason they didn't hire me was I found out only later that for that role, uh, especially young, uh, felt that I was too commercial. 
to commercial. So they thought, but my uni was in administration, uh, economics, right? So they felt I was not, not the typical kind of economics guy. So they felt that I would be bored pretty soon after I would join Roadrunner. So it didn't happen. Um, and I think about six weeks later, I got another call from Jan van der Linden that, uh, who told me that they had a potential, another position for me that was as a distribution manager. Right. And that, that, uh, and I took that role in the end. So long story short there, uh, I can't remember if I had any, any other interviews, but Ed van Zeil, who you also interviewed, uh, was the guy who, uh, uh, who was my tutor from, uh, from day one. Really good to see him again in that uh, podcast after so many years. Um, but basically how that worked was Rotary Records, and you've crossed uh, uh, that in other podcasts too, was a label that consists of, at that time, and there was 87, a small own artist roster, right? Uh, uh, but to a much larger extent, a lot of uh, licensed material. Mm -hmm. And the way the distribution network uh, worked was that we had basically one distributor per country. So in every, let's say, Western European country, there would be one party to which we sold the records, cassettes, CDs at that time. Um, and these were usually independent labels uh, late in the 80s. Only in the Netherlands, we were distributed by CBS, later Sony Music. Mm -hmm. And that was because Casey's uh, former uh, connections in that uh, business. But all the others, I would uh, say, were really small indie distributors and all the people I spoke to were really into heavy metal. Um, and one of the things that, that happened, what, what I had to do is twofold. On one side, make sure that the right number of cassettes, albums, CDs were manufactured uh, uh, to fulfill the demand of these distributors, not having too much <laughs> of these product because otherwise you had to throw them away, yeah. uh, finding a balance. Yeah. Uh, and on the other hand, ensuring that these distributors would be aware of all our new releases. We'll get to that maybe in a later stage and making sure also all these records, these cassettes reach them at the right time in order to meet the release date. And I guess also you, you talked about uh, with others about this always worldwide or at least European coordinated release date to avoid parallel imports, etc., which was always very important to all our distributors. Uh, and which was a large coordination because a car uh, a, a car to Greece takes longer than a car to Germany and so forth. So in order to meet the release date three weeks later, you probably had, right, it would be September 1st, you need the product ready about August 1st to get it also to Greece and maybe Sweden. But if it's to Belgium, you only need it a few days ahead because these distributors also need to distribute it to the record stores, right, in their country, which takes uh, time. So it, uh, um, so I was in touch, daily touch with both the factories uh, and all these distributors, uh, asking them about uh, our new releases, how many albums, CDs, cassettes they would like to order, uh, or the how much back catalog they still would have. Would they need to? Would they like to order a little bit more, right? In order also to have an, a large shipment enough that it made it worthwhile for the cost of transport uh, uh, to, still to be profitable on their side. Is, is this why you have these really small indie labels who really are into heavy metal? Because what you look for in, in a distributor is someone who understands the product and can therefore, when they're, when they're trying to scale their business and say, we need 30,000 King Diamond in the UK, you want to be in a position to say, oh, 
I know Steve, Steve knows his shit. And that's something you probably couldn't get from the major distribution channels, is it? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, although I think uh, and it was before my time that it grew because if you release some uh, metal stuff right in the early days, also the old Metallica stuff and other stuff and the other punk stuff, you automatically are, uh, uh, let's say, uh, interesting for these smaller distributors. Definitely not for the Sony Musics and the Polygrams of this world. Because if there's a Bruce Springsteen, Michael Jackson release or whatever you now, Beyonce release, you will you will go nowhere, <laughs> right? But for them, we were really important. Um, so um, we had coverage in every country that helped. And it definitely helped a lot that all these guys and ladies knew their, knew their business, knew these artists, were really all metalheads. We saw them every year at Medium and so forth, and so forth. And everybody was really into that kind of music, which helped tremendously promoting pitching uh, uh, our product. Absolutely. And you know, if you if you compared even in the early days with with CBS, right, Sony Music in the Netherlands, I think the only the only artist, and I joined exactly uh, uh, when when King Diamond was our biggest artist in uh, 80, uh, 87, that only with a release as King Diamond we could get uh, the attention of the sales reps of Sony Music to do something for our label. But most of them didn't really understand heavy metal, hard rock at all, right? They're in the pop business. So yes, it was uh, it was crucial for our yeah, uh, expansion also that we, uh, we were represented by these kind of companies. One thing which Stefan said, which was kind of revelatory to me, and I, I, it blew my mind started hearing it, was because as you mentioned before, I'm kind of obsessed with the licensing arm because all the way up to 2012, it's so busy. It's so busy. Even though you've got Slipknot and Nickelback in the roster, they're still churning out fucking Cliff Richard and Sinead O'Connor just on the back end in these smaller territories. I want to understand the commercial... The commerciality, the commerciality, if that's a word. Why is that beneficial? Is it is it pennies that, that Roadrunner is making on those records, which makes it worthwhile? Therefore, is the business practice effectively, I don't know, how do I use this word? Is it kind of almost parasitic? Is it like Roadrunner needs every opportunity? If there's an opportunity to make a penny, you should go for it, as long as it's within the confines of how much you know productivity you can have in a week. You mean with, you mean with the licensing stuff? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I guess it was twofold. Obviously, there were a number of uh, uh, good labels, either in the States or, or in the UK, that were looking for a representation on mainland Europe or in, in parts of Europe, right? Uh, let's say, uh, like Need Records with, with Motred or Metal Blade or the Shrapnel label of Mike Barney. Mm -hmm. So I guess by 87, Case had that name that this was uh, the go-to place for, for, for companies like that to, to, to try to get them represented on the other side, in the case of Metal Blade or Shrapnel, on the, on the other side of the ocean. And I guess for us, and I didn't realize it so much maybe then, we didn't have a large artist roster, at least not a large artist roster that was with, with large enough artists, right? big enough artists that could sell records and also justify all the shipments and so forth, right? But with this back catalog of all the Metal Blades stuff, uh, you know the names better than me, but also the Streptor stuff like the Vinnie Moores, Tony McElpines, uh, etc. Plus that Motred old catalog, well, Metal Blade, uh, Slayer, obviously, that, 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 that uh, uh, ensured a constant flow of demand from all these distributors. So that was one side. Did we really need it uh, uh, to make a penny? Uh, probably, 
probably in the beginning, uh, but less and less, uh, right, at the times we dis- uh, where, where we signed uh, uh, the Sepulturas and so forth of this world. Mm-hmm. But even then, uh, Metal Blade, I guess, we, we stopped working with uh, at a certain moment because they asked a ridiculous amount of advance. And at that time, we were in a position to say, well, okay, guess what? Well, that's how far this goes, but we will never uh, uh, get our return on investment, so we quit. And I think after half a year later, they lost Slayer themselves, so it was kind of a good uh, <laughs> a good call. Uh, um, but but uh, um, again, it helped a lot. But I also remember that at some at some time we had to have uh, internal meetings where we had to basically say we need to cut the number of labels we represent because it's just too much because. Jim, you know, view this. You you have to ensure you have enough stock on albums, CDs, cassettes. Well, at least on albums and CDs on on all of these artists, right? Because if there's a demand, you want to sell it, right? But having this very fast roster of 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 uh, um, of uh, records that is 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 a nightmare to maintain, and all of a sudden the demand stops, and you're stuck with a lot of overstocks. So we we became more critical over the years, yeah. Wow. I find that shit fucking fascinating because one of the things that, again, is in a conversation with Stefan is as a distributor, when you're, when you're managing that distributor label relationship, sometimes the priority is keeping them busy because that's, if you're the guy that brings in the business, they're going to want to work for you more, which speaks to what you were saying before, which is something that maybe couldn't, couldn't um, necessarily provide, um, you know, against like the pop world and things like that. So where we, one thing you mentioned as well is like the factories that are producing these, these CDs and cassettes. Now, I'm, this is a complete blind spot for me. I've never actually asked about this. What's that industry like in 87? Is it just like, is it one giant polygram, ex-polygram office factory or something like that that's been sat there since the 50s that's producing everything for mainland Europe? Or is it, is it, some, is it something else? Can you talk me through like the, the, where, the where's the who's and the what's? Like what, what's difficult? Was it particularly contentious trying to deal with these people because... With the, you know, I, I imagine, I imagine it must be a contentious relationship because it's an operation you're not too familiar with, not with you, with you being a distribution manager, not a factory fucking manufacturer. Right. Yeah. So, so, so first of all, there were different sites where we had uh, the CDs, cassettes, or albums uh, uh, manufactured. Um, so there was a small uh, company in the Netherlands where we had our vinyl uh, manufactured. Sony Music, CBS did do the cassettes, but that was by far the, the smallest part of it. And when I joined in 87, it's also interesting to the Roadrunner, I guess, story. That was that was the time that people start converting their vinyl to CDs. Mm. So I won't say it was a self-fulfilling prophecy, but the metal audience is very loyal. So nearly everything that you saw, you already bought on vinyl, people were replacing uh, or adding the CD version of it uh, uh, in in the late 80s. So when I joined from day one, it was really uh, 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 the only way was up because that happened. So if you look, if you zoom in on the various manufacturers, I used to go to the uh, the plant where they uh, where they pressed all the vinyl every day to pick up new releases, still white labels, about 100, 200 that we would send to journalists and our distributors just to listen to, right? Uh, and, uh, and 
that relationship was always very good. Where you get in some tension, as they have only so many presses, and if you basically need a lot of vinyl of one artist or two artists, let's say in a few days, it sometimes gets in the way of their other schedule, right? So people have to set priorities. Sometimes that gets a little bit tense, but usually, right, uh, you're working together for the same goal, although it's not the same company, so it was, was fine. Mm -hmm. uh, but on cities, it was more interesting because in the late 80s, there, was not, there were not so many CD plants. Um, the CD plant where we manufactured was Sonopress, was part of the Bertelsmann uh, 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 conglomerate. Mm -hmm. uh, BMG was the big record company that's also uh, um, owned by, uh, by, by them. And it was in the western part of Germany, so also not too far away. Um, what was interesting, the demand came... Uh, so steep, so high sometimes that everything started to become a priority. Mm. And I remember one day the general manager of the plant told me all on the phone, obviously, said, Oh, Michelle, one thing if everything is a priority, it doesn't matter anymore, right? Because then there's all equal. So you guys have to make your mind up what you want to have delivered first. And in the late 80s, early 90s, we didn't have any hit singles, right? We were only in heavy metal, which is typically album but in the mid 90s we also started to get number one hits because we were distributing these dance labels and had our own artists but then it gets really interesting if you have to get let's say a hundred thousand of these single cds right in one day manufactured that's a tall order then there is some friction i can tell you that <laughs> but hey if you lose if you if you don't manufacture them right then you lose your hit potential because these charts don't wait on you. If you can't deliver, you can't sell, and then you lose your top 10 position. There was a lot of pressure some days on, on, uh, on that. Yeah. I guess it's, I guess it's again, trying to... It, you said it there in terms of opportunity cost and risk cost. It's those kind of numbers and predictions that you have to sort of make, conduct yourself up against. No, it's interesting. Now, especially when we get into the 19, the CD boom is... The precipice of that upwards trajectory um yeah and the interesting thing is with, with these opportunity costs right uh, i always looked at it you have a, if you look at uh, album top 100 right there's uh, uh, and, and we usually didn't enter the album top 100 obviously but um there's only i don't know seven or eight or nine or ten new entries every week and there's lots of record companies, right? Then <laughs> every record company releases lots of albums, and there's only very, very, very few that make the charge or you make a lot of money on. So uh, uh, um, there, nine out of ten, well, ninety-nine out of hundred won't become a hit, right? Uh, I'm not saying you don't make any money of that, of it. So licensing is then interesting, right? Because you don't have the huge investment of recording the artist and all that. Uh, kind of stuff yeah one thing that was interesting that you said earlier was on the metal blade thing was they were asking for an advance i would i would have thought there'll be metal blade sort of the advance completely yeah so so basically uh, right as we take metal blade as an example brian slagle um they had a catalog they knew obviously historically how many albums we would sell so let's say just uh, uh, um, as an example we would expect to sell 100,000 albums a year and we would pay them a royalty of, I don't know, uh, one, one euro per, 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 per album, right? So 100,000 would be probably uh, uh, what, we would, what, we, what we would make. But if they ask in advance, so they ask in advance just to get the cash in 
in order to sign new acts themselves locally. That's how, that's why that advanced. They just get the money in that they're going to get anyway, very probably, only to get it half a year or a year later. On the flip side, if you have a one-year deal, usually the deals are longer, and you are you think you can sell, let's say, a hundred thousand albums, and you would have to pay a hundred thousand dollars. But hey, if after one year you only have sold uh, uh, sold fifty thousand, right? But you still have paid them a hundred thousand, so you lose as Roadrunner Records, you lose basically fifty thousand. Yeah. But what Metroblade at a certain moment did, they were expecting us, let's say, to sell. 500,000 albums a year. And we said, well, there's no way with your catalog that we can do it. And then you get promises of all these new acts, blah, 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 and so forth. So that's where the tension, uh, that's where the tension is. Right. I guess we did we did the same thing on the other side, by the way, right? With our licenses, <laughs> obviously. And, and that's actually an interesting story to tell because we touched base already on this distribution. But I think Says was really, really keen to get as much global distribution as we could. And I remember also in former Yugoslavia, it was at a certain moment, there was the war, early 90s. And uh, once Yugoslavia became a number of countries, there were guys that wanted to distribute our music, but they just couldn't pay for it. They, they, they just didn't have the money. Only if they sold the records, they could pay us. So usually no sane businessman would enter in such a deal, right, with unknown people. But say trusted them and said, okay, we're going to do this. And we're going to check it out. So you get a shipment for free. You pay us before you can order the next shipment, right? That was the deal. And they never, they never failed. So it was really interesting. It's also a kind of a sense of business, but also, yeah, uh, um, interested, uh, keen in exploring new opportunities, not afraid to lose here and there, etc. Yeah, that was says. What was your impression of says going in? I guess similar that, uh, uh, as the other colleagues have said, he was, um, well, I was 23, right? Uh, so, and being in the music industry was obviously the the, the, the best thing that could, could happen to me. Says is really, together with Jan, uh, be my tutor, done much more on the financial side, says much more also the businessman, marketing guy, etc. cetera, uh, worked his ass off. He went every two weeks to the US. I don't know how he did it. I've been to the US now also many, many times, but I still can't figure out how he survived. He was always working. Um, very loyal to his people, to all, all of us, but also to Stefan's point, one day you're in, the other day you're out. That could also happen, uh, 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 and that happened to quite a number of people. He was always himself, mm. never, never, uh, not always in the best mood, especially not when he was on a diet, because he always went on a diet before he went to the US, because then he could eat one week everything he wanted. He didn't drink, as you've heard. But and then he was a, a bit uh, well. He was not in his best mood before. But I've I've never seen somebody work as hard as says. And I guess he also because of that. We were all young when we joined the firm, and a lot of us had no clue. I'm sure about music at, at all and so forth. But we all followed his lead. I mean, it's now. 23 years since I left the company and I'm still working hard, but I never will work as hard as in Roadrunner. And 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 with pleasure, right? Don't get me wrong, with pleasure. And I think that's valid for all of us, whether you talk to Howie or Monty or Ed or, or others. We all enjoyed it because we were young, we're eager, and it was a well-led company. We were successful also, but we did work our ears off. And if you don't, right, Jim, we were, when I joined, I guess, six or seven people 
five, six people in the Netherlands, and it was just the uh, the the, uh, the the office in New York opened the year before. But if you were seven people and you have to send all this promotional material to all the journalists on Friday afternoon, we literally stand in line, right? Taking one album, taking a set, taking a biography, right? Wrapping it, closing it, stamping it, right? If one out of seven wouldn't be there, you have a problem. <laughs> if you have to, right? So we all had to act as a team, and it was it was really really exciting time. I think there were nearly two hundred people or so working when I left, but these early days were yeah were were, were also really really cool. Similarly, Jan van der Linden is kind of a blind spot as well. Uh, did how long was he there? I know he left. I think it was in eighty seven, wasn't it? Yeah, it must be eighty seven. Well, I, I joined. I think I joined in uh, in in summer eighty uh, or late summer eighty seven. So my memory, if my memory serves me well, he he left somewhere in eighty eight because I remembered multiple sessions also in his house. Uh, playing chess, uh, having uh, uh, too much beer, etc. So that can't be in just these three or four months. Uh, definitely not, because I also remember he took me to the US end of '87 for the first time. So it must have been '88 uh, 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 earliest. Right, okay. What was he like? But he was to definitely the. Sorry. What was he like compared to Kaysen? Yeah, uh, completely opposite. Says the marketing businessman, uh, 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 really into uh, 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 want to explore things. I want to, well, maybe not gamble, but want to expand. And Jan was the definitely the financial guy. I think Jan also saw me as his successor in these days. Uh, uh, um, um, and and there was a lot of tension, not in the in in the most negative way, but there was. So then the door closed, and you heard them talk, and everybody's like, "Okay, I don't know what's going to happen," <laughs> but uh, always arguing. I guess about always a lot of times arguing about. Says wanted to invest here and there, and Jan was just looking at uh, at money and uh, not sure if we would be able to earn that money back, etc. And I guess that was also the main reason in the end to uh, split ways uh, uh, um, because says wanted to expand and Jan was the one who I wasn't going to say he he didn't want to expand because he is a very successful businessman uh, but uh, more cautious than says right yeah this is cited as what caused the the split um not that the split's an important detail it's just I'm just trying to keep building those profiles so I understand yeah. the foundation upon which everything is built but you you start, you start touching on the expansion so the expansion is like this is for for the purpose of, of this project. It's where we move from me trying to look at billboard articles from 1978 through to everything's in living memory and everyone can just tell me what happened. So when you join the US offices opened, has the UK office opened yet? I'm not hundred percent sure. It was either around that same time that Mark Palmer joined, or it was just before or just after. Mm. But it, it can't be even half a year before or after. It must have been nearly at the same time. So can you tell me about how the company moved from this, this smaller operation, Amsterdam, office in the US, to what it ended up being in the, in the early stages of your tenure? Because I know it, it expands and there's some other satellite offices which are, are lesser known and they come and go. But I don't know what the core, the core enterprise was. Yeah, well, so the, the, the Netherlands obviously was was, uh, was uh, the, the headquarters uh, until the moment that says opened the, the, the office and uh, 
uh, in uh, Lafayette and Spring in, in, in New York and hired uh, uh, Monty and a few of the uh, other guys. So the, 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 the UK office was the first one to open after that with Mark Palmer uh, as general manager. And after that, uh, it was the German uh, office where there was first only a promotion lady and let's say an uh, all, uh, all, all round admin uh, assistant, uh, Alexander Dury and Heidi Hübner. And I used to go a lot to Cologne, uh, uh, to that office, because at that time we were small, but Sales was traveling all over the world. I guess I was the person there who know about 80% of everything. And that also that, that, that same continued with other offices in France and Brazil, etc. So I wasn't the expert in any area, I would say. But hey, if you don't know the answer to this last 15 or 20%, you pick up the phone and you ask your colleague in the Netherlands or somebody in the U.S., what the right answer is. Mm. So uh, uh, definitely Germany was uh, was uh, second because it was also right next to the UK, the largest base for our, our music. At that time, we were represented by SPV and in later states, it uh, went uh, to Intercourt. Then we started an operation in France, uh, initially with uh, with a, a lady, Nora, uh, and later on, Stéphane Zonier uh, 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 joined, a uh, really good guy also. And then... If my memory serves me well, we even had the Belgium office for some time. I can't remember if it's true, but I think we had that at least temporary. We opened an office in the West Coast US uh, just for regional uh, reasons and then expanded to Japan, uh, uh, Susuke Kawahara office. And I don't know if that came before Brazil. I think it came uh, because also, uh, right, a uh, 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 big heavy metal uh, uh, country with uh, Susuke Kawahara uh, as general manager and then Rotor in Brazil. And I think it partly was kind of a favor to Sepultura uh, to have an office in their, in their, in their home territory. Uh, I can't think of any artist than RDP that we signed that became successful. So uh, it was there. I don't know if it's still there. Uh, with Jerome Funk, and a Dutch guy who lived there for many, many years. And then the Australian office with uh, my also good friend, uh, John, uh, John Satterley. So my... If, that is my memory of our other offices. Maybe I'm missing one or two, but I don't think so. So the mechanics of opening an office in a particular territory is probably not for this conversation because it's more of a case. But were you in, are you in a position to say if there was like, was there any sort of contention in those opening months and those opening years with some of those territories? How do you mean contention? So there'll be some, obviously, like in the UK and Germany, it's a reliable heavy metal market. There's a, high, a reliable heavy metal consumer base there. Was that the case for everything? I mean, obviously, Japan is like a specialist thing. I talk about that. It's it's some length as well. But was there anywhere where it was like from the get go? This is going to be this is a strange set of circumstances. No, I don't think so. I, I think also the reason, the main reason initially to open these offices because we wanted to look at other sources to get new artists signed. And obviously, Brazil with Sepultura was <laughs> was was an obvious example. And I also think that John Satterley mentioned that in his uh, uh, podcast, right, that that was the main reason for says to go, let's say, south, <laughs> down under to Australia. It was not that the Australian market or New Zealand or Southeast Asia in itself would be large enough to justify that. And by the way, at that time, we already had licensing deals with all the major Southeast Asian uh, countries that gained us quite a, a good number of dollars in uh, in royalties and copyrights. So uh, now, 
Um, so again, I, I can't recall any Australian, Brazilian, or Japanese artist that we signed that became profitable. Yeah, I think it was uh, the from what I can gather the while all these offices were like a an A and R there was an array, an A and R rationale for it. Yeah, it was the United States was which was kind of the head of the A and R. The Netherlands was the head of everything else. But and if you sign someone in a, in a in a an overseas territory, there was a threshold you had to pass before you get that kind of worldwide distribution. Whereas if you if you were signed in the United States, the chances were that would be open to you from the get go. Um, but that's it's an interesting strategy. I, I remember I was asking Howie Abrams about this last week, and he basically said, "Well, just the way it is these days, back then, even today, perhaps that's where your trend-setting artists are going to be in the United States. So why make it a challenge for them? You know, <laughs> so it do, it does make sense. So one of the things that I, I, I allude to a few times, but I, I think I've got a proper answer on it, but I, in my head." I still can't discern the difference between publishing and copyright in this in a succinct way because the way I'd see it is if a publishing arm or a publishing company takes, say, any music or any book or any property associated with a roadrunner artist, they're effectively licensing it from roadrunner and then doing what they want with it. So while I'm trying to in my head, it's no different. So what is the difference between publishing and copyright? Because obviously, when you sign a record deal with uh, Roadrunner Records, you have they have a bit of the publishing and a bit of the the rights as well. Yeah, well, I guess for me, publishing and copyright in, is in principle the same. But I guess it could be uh, uh, you could look at for, from from uh, from different sides. So so basically, right, publishing is the you have the artist that records the artist, right, and publishing is then uh, uh, the, the 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 writer, right, either of the lyrics of the text. Uh, or the text, right? All right? And what we always did, um, what we always did when we signed a band, let's say take Simple Tour as an example, and I guess that was very clever, smart, whatever you would call it, is we always claimed also the publishing rights to anything the band would write and the merchandising rights for, for our own merchandising label, Blue Grape. So what was interesting, it's not the direct answer to your question, but um, the monies we would uh, generate from uh, selling a record or selling a t-shirt could all be set off, recouped against the advance that we put in for the record deal. So we basically always had three sources of income in order to make money uh, 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 when uh, when releasing uh, when releasing an album. So back to back to uh, uh, your your question about uh, uh, publishing. So how it works normally if you sell an album in the Netherlands, the record label pays a fixed amount of money to the Dutch uh, 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 society, copyright society in the Netherlands, it's uh, Buma Stembra, that collects all these monies from all these record companies and also the monies that uh, come in via uh, the, the restaurants and uh, the shopping centers that play music. Right. And then they look at the, the people who have the publishing rights. That could be ourselves, that could be others. And they distribute the monies then to these uh, publishing companies. So the society collects and then pays it to, the, uh, um, to, the, uh, to these companies. And these companies um, then in the end are responsible of paying the writer right, uh, of, of, the, of, of the song. Mm -hmm. 
either the, the text writer or uh, the one who did the, the who composed the music could be the same person by the way um, so that is how the system basically works and if you license it to let's say Japan then the Japanese the Japanese society would collect the monies they would look at the representative the parent representative if you will and in this case they would in the end transfer the monies to the Netherlands and the Dutch copyright society would pay the publishing company so do your to your uh, question um, who is uh, in a position basically to do with these rights right whatever they want if that is that would be us right because we do have the publishing rights of these artists so if somebody would like to record uh, a record right that Max Cavalera wrote then they would basically need our approval to do that it's opportunities in perpetuity isn't it so it's not necessarily that we're splitting um it's kind of like in terms of function it's kind of splitting hairs because the rights of the music and the rights of the publishing is as we say is kind of the same thing although on the publishing arm there's a different infrastructure which deals with lyrics and music composed by and there's a different revenue stream there but at the same time you've also got other functions which could happen in the future as you say if someone's going to do a cover it's then up to it's then up, up to Roderick to say, all right, give us a flat fee for it or whatever. So it's really yeah. just, yeah, okay. Okay, no, I understand that a lot more now. So, so I guess even, it's, it's a bit of more nuance. I guess that if, if, if you and me would do a cover of any Sepultura song, basically we would be allowed to do that, but we only would get money if our record sells. Mm. But we would never get the money because we are the authors of the song because we're not so that money right so if if, if it would be distributed also by roadrunner right roadrunner would pay that fee if they sold our record to the dutch copyright society right yeah. uh, and the dutch copyright society would look who is the legal representative of this track and they would get give the money to the people who uh, uh, who wrote the track so it's a different let, 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 your, to your point it's definitely a different revenue stream than uh, 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 the artist royalties, because the artist royalties, if we sell a record, right, let's say at 25 uh, uh, euros, and uh, the royalty we have to pay is 10%, so that's two euros and 50, we as a record label will have to give the 200, to get two euro 50 to that artist. Mm. There is no, uh, uh, no agency in between there. It's the record company who pays the artist royalties, but it's a publishing company, could be the same with the inter with the intermediate of a, a, a copyright society who's in the end paying the publishing money. Right. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, cool. What's the justification for having so many different revenue streams? Because we call this like nowadays the three sixty deal, which I know case sort of he sort of quasi invented it in the. Yeah, Roderick takes a bit of everything. Um, is it just because it's an indie label and it's like we've got to take we've got to take every opportunity we possibly can? No, I guess it is at least a very smart, uh, 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 a, a very smart businessman. Um, if you have um, all these rights and, and you say already in perpetuity, especially with the copyrights, right? 
you you have a potential endless uh, uh, stream of income uh, uh, from from that source. I don't know, right? Uh, you're not going to sell after 20 years the same T-shirts of Sepultura, right? So that merchandise is a different thing, and maybe the art, the albums are not sold anymore. But look at what has happened, uh, Jim. At right? uh, uh, late 90s, uh, the rise of the internet, all the physical distribution basically is gone, right? It's the Spotify's and 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 so of this world. So the one thing that you really want is to have the copyrights because that ensures a constant stream of income. Yeah. So. I don't know if Case picked it up from his days at uh, Polygram or, or whatever, but what I do know is that we always insisted, and Marcus can allude to that uh, much better than me, uh, um, that we would always have all these rights also basically to, um, let's say, to, to, to split our risks, right? Uh, uh, we pay in advance. Um, we pay 100,000 to record a new Machinet uh, album. Um, we can recoup that advance by selling the records. But if we don't sell so many records, we at least recoup some money because we also are the publisher. And if the band goes on tour and we sell, mer uh, we sell merchandise, we also recoup monies from there. So yes, uh, uh, we had three chances, if you will, to, uh, to make some money yeah, and, and split our risk. That's the phrase, splitting the risk. Splitting the risk. I've made this analogy a couple of times as well in terms of the Van, Van Egenstrijk office is central Amsterdam. It's yep. expensive. Ed von Zeller is expensive. Jan is expensive. So you, yep. when we have like direct signings to the flavor of our, let's say, let's call it 15 albums a year, an advance of $5,000, a lot of money to be putting at risk at that time. Um, yep. <clears throat> I use the word gamble and I've been told not to use the word gamble because it's more disingenuous. It's an, it's an investment. It's a non-secured investment. Um, so it makes sense to split the risk and try and dilute the possibility of losing the money, especially if it's in perpetuity, because you might not sell a lot of that machine head record, but in 20 years time, you may have covered the advance. Yep. No, but, but I guess you, you mentioned the Van Egenstraat, that's the office where I started, but Says lived basically around the corner on the Willems Parkweg, and at a certain moment, he sold that uh, 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 beautiful uh, uh, house and invested all the money in Roadrunner. He lived uh, on the second floor of our office for well, a number of years, I guess, even, right? Uh, uh, just to ha have the funds in order to grow the business. I had a company car in, on, in, 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 I think, in the second month because I had to go to this, this uh, manufacturer every day. Yeah. And after three or four years, when the lease was up, he took that car and drove at least another five years in it because he didn't give a shit. And he didn't want to have an expensive car. He just wanted to have four wheels to get to the office and back. So that was says everything for Roadrunner. Yeah. Wow. Um, and and also we 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 went from Van Egenstraat to uh, Basisweg. I think in '89, maybe it was '90. Uh, but for the same reason, right? We we rented uh, we rented space. Uh, uh, above, uh, on, above a very cheap supermarket, uh, it was on the water. That at least on the, uh, on the canal, but that was all there was, right? We had old furniture, old chairs, etc. Nothing what would be allowed in either your or my uh, current company. Uh, but even when I went to New York, uh, Jim, there were literally people, two people sitting at one desk, because the investment that we made was all in artists, right? And you can, you can say, you can have an opinion about it, but that is what 
we breathe, right? That is where, uh, uh, that's how says uh, so says let it. Took over a dance label, Buddhist, when that got bankrupt, an Amsterdam dance label, and after that we became very successful there. But also there, they had this uh, inventory of old desks, etc. And and I was at that time still says his right hand man, mm. and I was like says we have to throw it away. No, no, Michelle, we can just use it. I was like, no, what? <laughs> <laughs> It was definitely, if you would have put it on the street, Jim, nobody would have taken it, but we took it. On the other hand, we, we, we had a good infrastructure, right, with, with computers, etc. We were early. I, I still started when, they, when they had, we had a Telex, but it very quickly turned into a fax machine and stuff like that. We, we, we didn't, uh, uh, let's say, save any monies on this professional uh, environment uh, to build that. Uh, that was definitely not where we... Uh, where we were cheap on. Yeah. And it makes sense. Indie, indie through and through, right? Absolutely. You mentioned, um, we'll talk about royalties a bit when we're talking about the deals. Can you tell me about how the royalty administration function works? Because in my head, this would simply be a matter of volumetric automation. So it'd be a matter of going, right, all the artist deals, Michelle, are sat over there. And here's the accountant coming in on Thursday. We need to be in a position to tell the accountant exactly how much we're paying our artists. Do the sums, please, on a monthly basis. Now, I, I don't think, think it was on monthly. It was not on monthly. It was either quarterly or, or semi-annually. Ooh. And okay. uh, uh, that you paid artists and, and the copyrights, I think, every half year, actually. So every half year, there was a lot of stress because you need to get all the sales figures from various countries uh, in there, and this was not, at the beginning definitely not uh, uh, automated, not at all. And this was definitely a matter of getting lists on paper from Sony Music, CBS, right? Typing over all these numbers. So we sold so many Sepultura albums in Germany, Netherlands, Belgium, and so on and so forth. Mm. The base of paying the royalty is like 25 guilders. The royalty we have to pay is 10%. We can deduct A, B, C, and D. So the base becomes 20 or 70, 50 or whatever. And then it's a big Excel sheet. And uh, right, and, uh, and, the, uh, and the, the, the magic number is A. And this goes row by row by row by row. So it was huge pieces of paper, etc., which in the end added up to a number. Then you obviously offset that against the advance that was given, right? Or against the 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 the, the amount that was there from from last uh, uh, last half year, and that's how that's how this uh, this went. And then if the copyright monies came in, we 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 were represented by a um, another company uh, called Universal Songs, not part of the Universal Record Company, but part of BMG, mm-hmm. um, that that collected all our copyrights, and they at least. Uh, uh, um, did the admin around it so that all the shrapnel copyrights came in one document and all the, well, we didn't have the, the, the publishing for Metal Blade, I, I remember that, but at least it was kind of sorted, so it was less of admin work. But no, don't, uh, uh, don't think this was already very fancy. It was literally all manual work. Yeah. And then the, the difficulty always was also because, uh, well, not Monty, but the general manager there, Doug Keo, had to send the stuff from the U.S. And I went to the U.S. a lot of times also to work with him and others for the U.S. stuff. That came through the U.S. to the Netherlands. We had to combine all this stuff. 
and then in the end sent this uh, sent all the statements and uh, where it was due some monies to the artist. Right. So it was- that's how it. <laughs> When I say, when I say volumetric automation, what I really mean is you're probably praying for a way that this could be kind of copy and pasted into a spreadsheet and just done. Although also there, right? We 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 grew, we became bigger, and more people. We hired a royalty copyright manager that was also really into automation. So. Uh, I don't know if you could talk talk really about automation, but as far as we could automate it, (laughs) we had spreadsheets work at least to a certain extent for us. Yeah. How did SoundScan affect this then? Because all of a sudden, you're no longer at the whim of the distributor's approved statement. You have now got a strategic data set, haven't you? Yeah, I I, I actually... uh, I don't know anything about SoundScan. Maybe I forgot about that, but in my days, there was no SoundScan. I don't know where it comes from, but I don't know it. It was basically the, it was, it was built, uh, it's basically a company called Nielsen it created a, effectively the scanning system, like that, like the IBAN system. So no longer were you hoping that Pinnacle would, would submit the sales um, reports from, the UK over to the Amsterdam office. It would literally be a centralized sound scan report, which could tell you every single vendor's um, sales by the amount of times the barcode was scanned. And then that would feed into billboard, which would feed into chart performance, which would feed into a lot of other things. It would basically be, it became the strategic data set, at least in the States. Yeah. Well, well, so, so with regard, okay. So with regard to the whole barcode system, don't forget, right. When we sold our records, we had one distributor per country. So mm-hmm. at the moment, it's a little bit more nuanced, but at the moment, it left the Sony warehouse, the CBS warehouse on an invoice. It was basically sold. And at that moment, you have to pay the copyrights and the royalties. Mm-hmm. Some some product is being returned, but the numbers that we needed were all in the Sony music system. Right. So I don't know if it could have been affected by it, but but we didn't definitely need it. Um, if you look at uh, how SoundScan, or and I, again, I didn't know it was SoundScan, but that um, the registration of albums or singles that were really sold in the stores through this uh, barcode system, to what extent that really uh, influenced the whole copyright and royalty department? Again, not at all. Obviously, it influenced the fact whether we would have a hit record or so. Right, because if it would sold, would be sold across the counter in Germany at that moment, it's scanned, somebody registers, it is sold in, I don't know, in Hamburg or in Munich or so. But for us, the base for these royalty copyrights were not what was sold in the store itself to a client, but when it left the warehouse, because the distributors bought the product from us directly, mm-hmm. only with a very limited, uh, let's say, right to return the goods. What's that called? Consignment? Yeah, that is, in consignment was, uh, maybe it was in Pinnacle, but I don't even think so. But at a certain moment with Intercourt, the, the, the second distributor we had in Germany, part of that or all of that was in consignment. Yes. Right. Okay. And then I also remember we always had big fights with Dutch Copyright Authority because they felt we sold it. And we said, well, no, we just shipped it to another warehouse, basically. Um, so... So again, if you look at the royalties and the copyrights, 
We send it to the, the warehouse in Stuttgart, but so we know there was a thousand of Sepultura, but at the end we would ask them at the end of the year, how many do you still have in stock? So the difference was what has been sold. So that's, that's how it, it works. That formed the basis. They're buying the risk off you as well when you ship it. I get, I get you. Yeah. So when it's shipped, it's not necessarily sold, but it, for you guys, it's like, whatever, they've, they've, they've got rid of, they've shipped a thousand Sepultura records. They're off our books, which is fine. But the thing that's going to yeah. be the, the issue is when they report the sales for the copyright and publishing purposes later down the line. Yeah. And in the US, it's completely different because historically, every, let's say, record store or chain of record stores has the right to return 100% of their goods. So even if we would have shipped 100,000, uh, let me stay with Sepultura, you never know if you even sold one because they could potentially return them all. Right. Okay. Okay. And sometimes that nearly happened, I can tell you. We, we talked about fat and the licensing function earlier. Did we talk about the profit, profitability of it? No, we didn't talk about it yet. No, we didn't, did we? So, I mean, one thing Alain Verhaave mentioned to me was, although there are numbers thrown around per catalog item or product, it could be a simple matter of if you get a Metallica CD in, or record in, it might be that your licensing arrangement means Megaforce gets a, or Music for Nation gets a sizable royalty on it. And it might not think, it might not be considered a great deal from Roadrunner's perspective when they are distributing a licensed property within the mainland of Europe. However, the artist development costs and the initial sort of startup costs in that sense aren't being borne by Roadrunner. Therefore, even if it isn't a great amount that you're going to make per record, it's effectively free money do you absolutely. take that do you take that view absolutely no i echo what alain said uh, uh, absolutely um there's no investment at all right otherwise uh, next to that advance that we talked earlier about that you have to pay but there's no recording budget right you don't have to hire a producer you don't have to uh, uh, do any artwork you don't have to get bands over on promo tour and all the other uh, 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 stuff uh, uh, basically that, that sometimes it happens with big bands, uh, even on a licensing product, we did it, but the original investment is, uh, is, is, is nearly zero compared to your own artist. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I, I, I wasn't going to, I, I wouldn't say, I don't know what Alain said, but there was no risk at all because we also uh, uh, made deals with labels that we literally didn't sell uh, nearly anything uh, 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 about, but uh, in principle, yeah, that's true. Right. Okay. Okay. And it speaks again to what we were saying before about the, um, keeping the distributors busy on that front. And it's just an, it's a it's free labor for free repertoire in that side of the world in that part of the industry. So now that makes sense to me. Um, okay, one thing I, I try and figure out, and I'll, this speaks to what I was saying before about the financial risk that's being sort of born when you're investing in an artist. What was Roadrunner as an entity financially during these years? Was it in the red all the time? Was it not in the black until, say, Chaos ID? Or was it always, it did it always have a baseline profit, which was relatively healthy? Obviously, you don't yes. have to tell me uh, everything. You can just tell me. No, 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 no. But I was also this, I was also the CFO of the company. Uh, uh, so, uh, yep, uh, always. Yep. I, I wasn't going to say that it was always as easy as when it really kicked off where with Sepultura and, and later with uh, bands like Slipknot and, and others. But 
we were successful from the day I joined, not because I joined or Alain joined, but we were successful. And I guess, again, what I said earlier, big part of that was also that conversion from album to CDs yeah. that brought us a constant stream. We did sell about five to 700 Slayer CDs of each of the all three, four CDs per week in, in Euro, right? Per week. Wow. Yeah, so that was obviously the biggest part was 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 in Germany and and in in the UK, um, but uh, right the motorhead not in the UK because we didn't have the rights there. We had the rights only for Germany, but hey, that was and still is I guess <laughs> a big band. So uh, that constant stream uh, ensured that there was enough money uh, to do to expand also. But hey, we also uh, right we talked about it earlier. Um, you, it's always a gamble when you uh, re, uh, when you sign a new artist, and there is unfortunately also lots of examples of artists we signed and we spent lots and lots of money that didn't sell huge numbers. I remember clearly Lost Track. I don't know if you know that band, yeah. but I think we spent over half a million dollars uh, on that, and we globally sold only thirty thirty five thousand. It was supposed to be the next U two. Well, it didn't work out that way. But this was also says, I, he also said then, but we had a lot of fun trying to break that record. And we had. <laughs> it didn't work out, lost a lot of money. But on the flip side, I guess we signed obituary for about $16,000 or so, that first album. And we sold nearly 100000 or maybe even more, right? So, yeah. It's, it's the dark art of it, isn't it? Because you never know what's exactly going to blow up. No, but but I guess Monty, and uh, again, I'm not a metalhead, but people like Monty changed that dramatically, right? I know some of us, well, not me, but other colleagues that also had kind of an A&R role were many times frustrated because every tape we got, right, that people listened to the local A&R, and whether it was in Germany or it was in Netherlands or so, needed to go to Monty because says, for says it was Monty's decision all the time and it was not that black and white, but if it was not American, Monty hardly ever wanted to sign it. <laughs> uh, but hey, to his point, right? He was very, very, very successful in, in, in signing. So I, I, I probably can't blame him. And I know you also talked to, to Mike van Rijswijk, who did all the listening to these tapes at Medium. And Mike and I always went there a few days ahead because we were building the standard, two of us. But I, I remember, I remember that I admire Mike so much that all these people, right, a lot of young people and all these representatives came up every day to our stands with these cassettes and so and Mike was always so polite, nice, and, and basically with a smile in their face basically said that this music really, really sucked. <laughs> <laughs> So he was the kind of the, the first filter and if he would be happy, then it still had to go to Monty. So I guess that that also uh, probably uh, uh, ensured that we didn't have so many, let's say, failures. Maybe failures, but not that cost us a lot of money. Mm. Mm. Let's put. Let's. I'm going to put a nail in this coffin. Mike didn't work for Roadrunner. He worked with Roadrunner. Is that a fair statement? That's what I would say. Yes. Yeah. I don't know what he says himself, but 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 my, my perception he had their office. He was there. He was there uh, nearly as often as as we had. But he was the actual metal hammer guy, right? And 
and he he worked with us. But uh, I don't uh, I don't recall Mike being on the payroll. It could be it could just be my perception of it because I think it was like um, Mike saying I, didn't, I never worked at Roadrunner, and then the next sentence he was like, anyway, I pulled up to my desk next to Ed, next to Ed Von Sell, and I'm like, what do you mean you didn't work there? You sat next to it. No, it seemed like there was um, some sort of joint venture, but not necessarily a, um, a contractual employee-employer relationship. Uh, that could be true. And obviously, we were very close because he was, right, the personification of <laughs> of uh, metal in the Netherlands, right, uh, with the Archrock Met- uh, as being the owner of the Archrock Metal Hammer, right, and very involved in that scene also with the guys from Dynamo and so forth. So, hey. To me, he was mainly a good friend and somebody I love to work with, but uh, I don't think he was. Uh, we employed him. <laughs> <laughs> this is a bit of a shot in the dark. Um, but did you have, did you have anything any sight of these "Stop the Madness" stickers? Okay, no, I know we put them on. Uh, right, it says always insisted on it, and even when a band, because that happened occasionally, refused, kind of wanted to, uh, uh, didn't want that. Says basically that well, if you uh, if you are refusing that, there's no deal. So there, this is not negotiable. I'm just trying to wonder. But I don't I don't recall where uh, where this came from at a certain uh, moment. No, I don't. Yeah, I mean, you could even say it's, I mean, it's a, it's a different conversation, but you could even say it's part of that branding as well. It's like um, not only are we producing kick-ass metal, but also we care about you as a consumer and we want you to be in a good state. Yeah, yeah and, and, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Again, I don't think any of us when we were in our 20s felt that way, but in hindsight, uh, probably it's true. Say he was 20 years older or so. Um, but hey, he didn't drink. You've heard that from other co- uh, other guys also, right? Um, and um, so so he didn't smoke. Uh, and all of us smoked, <laughs> so he was. Uh, it must have been terrible for him. Also, in all these meetings, that uh, Mike didn't smoke either. But it's like, yeah, yeah, fair enough. Okay, I'll try. I'll try and find. If I find that out, I'll tell you. Yeah. <laughs> That's fine. Um, tell me about your best day and then your worst day at Roadrunner, or flip them around if if that one story is better than the other. <laughs> you can't say the day you joined, the day you left. <laughs> yeah, well, well, well. Definitely, have, being hired at that moment, you you don't know how good a ride it's going to be. And I stayed there for over ten years, so it was uh, it was a really, really, really good trip uh, over the years. I guess the best day, uh, uh, what I can remember is when I made together with Hank Hacker, who was at that time the general manager of our German uh, firm, mm-hmm. the deal with Intercourt. Um, it was, we had negotiated for months and months. And again, Says was not so much involved because he let me negotiate, but he was always there on the background because he in the end had to uh, to obviously give, give his blessing. And um, it went on and on. And after many, many weeks, we, we couldn't conclude to a deal. And I flew to Stuttgart. Hank drove to Stuttgart. We again had a, lo- a long meeting. It was not necessarily pleasant. Um, and Hank and I, although he was in Germany, we were both Dutch. Um, and their CFO was also a Dutch guy. I can't remember his name. So it was the three of us and their, uh, the owner of uh, uh, Intercourt. And we couldn't come to a deal. Everybody was frustrated. So, and we went out to, uh, to, for dinner. And during that dinner, we kind of got a brainwave. And within 20 minutes, probably it was a lot of beer or other shots or whatever involved, 
we made that deal. And it was a mega deal because Germany was obviously the largest country for, for heavy metal music. It was a multi, uh, uh, multi-million, multi-year deal. So I guess having... Uh, uh, had that having that signed was was massive, and I also remember vaguely that we got very drunk, and the next day I had to fly, fly back, but I was so tired I, I fell asleep at the airport, and somebody knocked on my shoulder. He said, "Don't you have to take this plane back to Amsterdam?" <laughs> otherwise, so that was that was definitely one of the the best days. Worst days. Is it too bad if I say I I, I just can't name any? Uh, 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 maybe maybe, maybe uh, but I don't think it was somebody's particular mistake that we had fifty thousand uh, uh, sleeves for records of King Diamond printed and it was in the wrong color. <laughs> or when you have an artist presentation of a Dutch artist that was a personal friend of case and we had to present this CD. Uh, at a night in a in a in a theater in Amsterdam, and everything was set up. The CD arrives, and there's the wrong music on the CD. Oh no! <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, Amazing. shit happens. Yeah, <laughs> and I don't know about that second one. I don't. I, I definitely don't know anymore how we uh, how we solved that because it's not like ten minutes later you have a new one. With these album sleeve, it's just a waste of money, right? You have to uh, uh, throw them with the, you have to destroy them. But not many bad days set right on the records for me. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, that's good to that's good to learn. <laughs> um, so let's let's close this out then with um, how did your tenure at Roadrunner come to an end? Were you just seeking other opportunities, or was there a catalyst? No, it was it was it was twofold. I said earlier, says says uh, is very loyal to people, but at a certain moment also, one day you're in, next day you're out. Mm-hmm. So what happened to me is was in the last three four years, he hired a number of let's say um, uh, uh, high end consultants in various areas uh, uh, because he wanted to expand the company, and um, uh, one of the guys was uh, in the end uh, was his CFO. And he and I couldn't get along very well uh, uh, together. Uh, I was always the generalist and he was the financial guy and the financial guru was a chartered accountant and so forth. And, and, and basically says us to make a choice uh, uh, because there was two captains on one ship and that was just simply, uh, uh, that didn't work. Um, and he chose uh, uh, to, uh, uh, to stay with the financial guy uh, because again, he wanted to uh, expand, want to buy other companies, etc. So this guy was of more Ian was of more value at that moment to him. But uh, right, so yeah, I was in the end asked to, to 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 leave the firm. On the other hand, in that same in that same uh, uh, meeting, he said, Michelle, whatever time you need, whatever you need from me, we're going to make this work because right, you've been instrumental. 10 years from the very beginning throughout the South. This is not, let's say, a sad goodbye or whatever. Um, yeah, it happened. Have you been in touch since? Been in touch with Sage? Yeah, but not in the last 15 years. The, the, the few years, the first years after, yeah, but on and off because a lot of these guys still uh, uh, work at Roadrunner Records. I used to go to festivals and so, or, and, and, and pop in the office, but not really often. 
uh, not really often, but if you if you stay and stay for one more year in the Dutch music industry, you see each other at either the festivals or at Midem and so on and so forth. Yeah. yeah, fair enough. Okay. Well, in, in that case, uh, Michelle, is there anything I've missed? Like any stories you sort of came armed with um, that we haven't touched upon or, or anything that we missed? No, I, I know it's about Roadrunner and it's more about uh, the metal uh, uh, part of it than it's about the poppy part. And uh, right, you, you heard stories from Stefan and stuff when we started to get into dance music. But the one thing what 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 maybe not a lot of people realize that we had in 95, 96, I think we had six number one hits in the Netherlands and also quite an, a number of number one hits in, in the UK and, uh, and, and in Germany and so forth. So... Interesting enough, although uh, by nature, right, a heavy metal uh, <laughs> label, we were very successful also in, in, in dance. Technohead. Yeah, Technohead was one of them. That was the first one. And also interesting about, right, gamble and stuff, how that worked. We, you, sign, you sign this, well, you can't even say it. it's an artist, right? Uh, uh, two people, you pay them 1,500 quid at these days. You have 200 white labels pressed, and you 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 give them to journalists and to clubs, etc. You hope something comes bubbling up, and it did. Right? We we sold 80,000 a day at the moment in at a certain moment in Germany, right? And and similar in the UK. And then it starts paying off. Talking about royalties, right? When these year-end compilation CDs and so are released, because everybody wants you on that compilation. You don't have to do anything, right? And with these Bravo hits in uh, in Germany, and I don't even call, uh, recall what it was called in in the in in in, in the UK, but these compilation year end right just before Christmas CDs sold millions. And if you get ten cents on right uh, every uh, CD, that's a lot of money. Yeah, um, I was I was speaking to Dennis Klutz, um some time ago, and he was telling me about the the, the nylons. Which yeah, is yeah, happy together, yeah. Yeah, but that was really in the early days, right? Because that yeah. was licensed from Ethic Records. So that was really when Says was, I guess, finding his way, what he wanted to do, because we also had uh, songs for children, ABBA for children we had, well, it was before my time, and some language guides and all that kind of stuff that you saw in the in the cabinet, like, what the hell is this? <laughs> right? uh, Jim Croce, obviously. But when we came, became big, Says always wanted to have this classical label, right? So that's when we when we kind of entered in the joint venture or so with, uh, with, uh, with, with a guy and, and released all this classical stuff, which I think our best-selling, I don't even know, is that an artist? Or our best-selling CD was like, 200 units <laughs> but says just wanted it because he's in classical music he yeah. just wanted to have this classical label emergo classics wasn't it or something like that correct yeah yeah i do my own work yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we had our merchandising company which was very successful yeah that's something i need, I need to try and find felix sebaceous on that one because it's it's interesting it seems to have it seems to be as recognizable as roadrunner and I know it is like a roadrunner company, but it's also like not. I think it was treated as a separate thing. It was. Although it was part of the deals and it was owned by Case. It wasn't owned by maybe, maybe it wasn't owned by Roadrunner Productions BV, but it was treated as a separate thing regardless. Um, and that's right. compelling enough. It's, it's, yeah. Again, it's about maximizing those revenue streams and de risking the investment, I guess. Right. Yeah, because it's also powerful to have that all in house, right? 
but I remember all of us also when there were gigs in the Netherlands or even in Belgium or Germany, driving with our own car to deliver the t-shirts and stuff to that venue in order for the artists to sell their stuff uh, uh, at night during the concert, right? That's what we did. Everybody was important. I work as a big company now, but the broker, if you have seven or eight people, right? If somebody isn't there, then you are in trouble. Mm. Not with these large major companies, but with us, everybody was equally important. Yeah. All right, I've got I've got nothing else for you question wise. I, I I did borrow some questions from the or at least the um some of the context from Stefan's one because I, there were similar kind of areas that you guys overlap and I was like, ah, it'd be good to round off my understanding of these areas. So thank you very much because you've you've done that. It's like it really well. No problem. <laughs> no problem. No, and again, right, with with, with Stefan and, and the others you talk to, the the when I when I also listen to these podcasts, these stories are similar, right? The experience that we had, the energy we got from it is is, is similar. And uh, like Seva said, we were all young, right? And Says has a very good hand, I guess, in recruiting uh, uh, recruiting people. Or so I don't know how he does it. Maybe it was just luck, but I I just don't think it was that way. Very successful, also with all these guys and girls in the in the US. Great team, yeah, it's a great time. I mean, I try and lean on the leadership angle quite a bit because that's what a lot of it is about. He seems, you said it yourself, he seems to give a shit about his colleagues and the development of the colleagues because that's what makes the unit work. That's the difference sometimes. When, when I think about Roger and other labels, yeah, that seems to be the difference because there are a lot of lifers, such as yourself, who were there for 10 years and if you like Monty, who was there yeah, for 25 absolutely. years. That's not an accident. That's not an accident. No, absolutely not. No. Right. Okay. I'm gonna. I'm gonna let you go, mate. Thank you very much for um, 